Uh, Jing, uh, the, the light in your office is right above your head. It makes you look like an angel with a halo, although it is a rectangular halo. She is an angel. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's a rectangular ring on my head. No, if, if you can, you may want to elevate your computer so it's not getting the lights. Or, yeah, point the camera downward or something. Yeah. Something like that. <laughs> or just sit there in the dark. She's, she's the new Red Baron. She's the new Red Baron. She's coming out of the sun. Change an angle, yeah. She's coming in for an attack. <laughs> Thank you for using the only good picture of me ever taken. <laughs> well, you know, we, we, uh, we, we always try to, to be as complimentary as we can. Thank you. And, you know, I've been very intrigued, looking forward to this, uh, Jackson, very intrigued ever since we first talked about this, because uh, you told me that you were going to give us answers that we have not been hearing from any of, other, of our other speakers. Yes, I will. And so I'm, I'm, you, have, uh, you have my interest peaked. You ha I am intrigued and looking forward to hearing what you have up your sleeve for us. <laughs> well, it, when you ask me questions about how to come up with good research questions or you know, what are the open questions or advice for PhD students, I'm going to offer you things that no one else has offered. Excellent. Excellent. Great. It's all about the PhD students. It's all about the PhD students. <laughs> Always. Best photo ever taken of Jackson right here. So it's my pleasure to introduce our guest today is Jackson Nickerson, who is the Fram Family Professor of Organization and Strategy uh, at uh, Washington University in St. Louis's Olin School of Business. He's also a senior non-resident fellow at the Brookings Institution. Uh, Jackson earned his doctorate uh, in business and public policy at uh, UC Berkeley, the famous BPP program that uh, several of our guests have uh, hailed from. Uh, his dissertation uh, title was uh, Toward an Economizing Theory of Strategy, the Choice of Strategic Position, Assets, and Organizational Form, which he completed under his um, advisor and mentor, the, the late, great Oliver Williamson. Uh, and uh, Jackson has uh, accumulated over 9,000 Google citations uh, and served on numerous editorial boards, including uh, SMJ and organization science. He studies leadership issues around why firms choose different organizational structures and the performance implications of these choices with a special emphasis on knowledge, innovation, and problem, problem formulation and solving. All big, big topics, big ambitious topics, uh, big ambitious dissertation title, uh, ambitious guy. So let me uh, uh, pause there and say, welcome Jackson. Uh, thank you, sir, very much. But I, I do have a minor correction to offer. Uh-oh. I'm, I'm no longer the Fram Family Professor of Organization Strategy. Okay. Currently, I'm a Professor Emeritus of Organization and Strategy. Oh, my. Okay. So when did this happen? It, it's complicated. 
but it happened July 1st. Okay. Um, wow. My wife wanted to take care of her, her uh, aging mother. And so I struck a deal so we could move to California for her to do that. Oh, okay. So okay. I, it doesn't mean I'm retired. It just means my title has changed. Okay. Well, congratulations. Still, research, still working hard. Okay. Congratulations on your new role, whatever that is. <laughs> and uh, look forward to seeing what the, the next phase is uh, in, the, in the Jackson Nickerson story. So yes, why don't we just, um, you know, I, I, I love to start these discussions by asking uh, uh, questions about uh, the, the often indirect pathways that led our guests to this career. Uh, I think uh, I've said many times, I've never known a 10-year-old who said, uh, mommy, I want to be a strategy professor when I grow up. Uh, it's even less likely to hear a 10-year-old say, uh, mommy, I want to be a transaction cost economist when I grow up. <laughs> uh, and, and so I figure there must be some interesting indirect story about you getting into this career, uh, given that you started off in uh, mechanical design and control systems engineering as an undergraduate. So why don't you just tell us a little bit about the, the path that led you into this crazy career? What is a nice engineer like you doing in a field like this? Place like this. Well, as, as a 10-year-old, I, I wanted to work for NASA. I've read a lot of books about space. I didn't want to be an astronaut, but I, I wanted to work for, for NASA. Ironically, I, I eventually did, which was quite fun. And I never imagined being a transaction cost economist. However, I have to tell you a joke that my dad told me. Around when I was 10, we had this garage built into a, a, a hillside. And he said, uh, son, jump up on the roof, which you could easily walk up to and walk out to the pinnacle. And he said, okay, standing below, holding out his hands. He said, uh, jump, I'll catch you. And I said, okay, dad. And so I jump and boom, I go right through his arms and hit the ground. I said, dad, he said, no, I, I missed you. I'm sorry, let's try this again. So he had me go up to the peak of the roof and, and he said, okay, son, I'm, I'm, I'm ready. I said, dad, are you sure you're ready? He says, yes, I'm ready. So he says, okay, jump. And I'm a little hesitant, but I jump. And sure enough, I fall right through his arms to the ground. <laughs> he said, oh, son, I, I'm, just, I'm just so sorry. It was, it's just it was an accident. Let's try it one more time. I'm like, that. And so he coached me, coached me up to the top of the roof. And I'm standing there and he says, okay, son, jump. I'm ready for you. And I looked at him and said, dad, I'm not going to jump. He said, what's wrong? He said, I don't trust you. And he said, son, that's your first lesson in business. Don't trust anyone, even your own father. Okay, wow. That was a joke, really, but that's what he told me at 10. If that's not the basis of a transaction cost economist, I don't know what right. it is. That's right. That's right. <laughs> uh, actually, I, I did graduate with an undergraduate degree in, in mechanical engineering. I got a master's degree in control systems, and I went to work for the Jet Propulsion Laboratory for NASA which was uh, very, very fun. I designed control systems to point antennas on Earth to communicate with Voyager 1 and Voyager 2. Okay, so you're a rocket scientist. Well, not quite, but I, I know a few, let's put it that way. Okay. <laughs> and it was a, a really fun job, but they were promoting me early into management, and I thought I should go and find out about how to be a good manager, a mm -hmm. leader. So I went and got an MBA at Cal at Berkeley. Uh, now Haas. And while I was there, I had this guy named Charles O'Reilly for my OB course. And I remember going and talking to him and through him, 
although I don't think he knew it, I fell in love with the idea of teaching, researching, and consulting. Uh, today, that's called engaged scholarship. But back then, I thought, hey, how cool it would be to do, do these things. And I also had the great fortune of having the one and only strategy course taught by Oliver Williamson to MBA students. Mm. He and David Teese co-taught the course. And I had another course uh, from David. So I applied to the PhD program. And at the time, I was still an MBA student. And a friend of mine and I decided to uh, start up a firm. And so, so by the way, I applied the and I had been admitted, I turned them down. Uh, and uh, I asked, could I be uh, delayed for a year? And they said, no, if you want to try again, you have to reapply. Okay. So the startup didn't start up so well. It was during the first Gulf War. Okay. And uh, eventually we had to close shop. And I applied again to the program. And I was oh so lucky that they admitted me again. <laughs> now, if I'd gone the first time, I would have been in Brian Silverman's cohort. Uh-huh. Instead, the second time, I was in Janet Berkowitz's cohort. Mm -hmm. And uh, ultimately, you know, that's how I ended up uh, getting a PhD and ending up at Washington University. So that, that, uh, that strategy course with uh, Thies and Williamson, did that bear any resemblance to the kind of strategy courses we teach today? Nothing whatsoever. <laughs> now, uh, I went to school with my MBA with uh, Ollie's daughter, Tammy. She's a good friend of mine. Okay. So I, I knew a little bit, very little about transaction cost economics, but I, I read it intently. I, I so wanted to learn what it was about. And frankly, whenever Ollie got up to speak in the MBA class, Nobody knew what the hell he was saying. And so they used to ask me after class, what is he saying? And, you know, I maybe got 10% of it, but that was better than everybody else. Wow. It, it was quite the experience. <laughs> cool. Okay, so you're in the, you're in the PhD program now uh, on, on, uh, on the, the, the second post-startup crash uh, attempt. Uh, and... Um, how, what was that experience like for you being at Berkeley in the PhD program? Tell us a little bit about what that was like. Sometimes you're lucky to know when you're in this episode of life being great and wonderful. And in many ways, I, I knew I was in that episode. The folks I went to school with were pretty awesome, not just in the, in the, uh, a strategy group or the business and public policy group, but also in the organizational behavior group because we took some classes together. Mm -hmm. One of the great things about the Berkeley program is I had classes in OB with George Strauss and, and Glenn Carroll, for example. And so it was just a great cohort of, of people. We had this uh, two courses that were most memorable. One is called BA 298 in which the PhD students would come together every week and they would present what they were thinking. And it'd be at least one or two faculty members there. And it was a great opportunity to kind of eat, uh, chew each other up, but really it helped each other and push each other. And so there was this uh, collective uh, effort. We also had IDS 270, which was Oliver Williamson's institutional seminar, where we had the most remarkable people come in not only to present, but also just to be there and 
and ask questions. So as PhD students, it was really quite an experience, quite a show, and you got a sense of, of maybe where the, the boundaries of various fields were being pushed out. Uh, another thing that was great is we started a tradition while I was there of the more senior PhD students co-authoring with the more junior PhD students, which led to sort of a, uh, a great training bet because you know, their thinking was a little bit more advanced and it created all these relationships because PhD students tend to hunker down by themselves. They tend to think I'm not worthy. If I just read one more paper, I'll be smart. Uh, I don't want to share my ideas because they're so bad. And we had a someone will steal them, right? <laughs> well, I don't think we ever had that that concern. <laughs> but it was it was a, really a, a social and collective enterprise that we developed, and it it carried on for for some time. And so I, I was just a, I think a, a wonderful time staying up in the computer lab until one in the morning or whatever. Uh, it, it was it was a great time. So tell us a little bit about how did you find your dissertation topic? What was the process that led you to the particular dissertation topic that you did? Again, the, the title was the Toward an Economizing Theory of Strategy. Very ambitious title. Yeah, it sounds ambitious, but let me be clear right up front. It was a lousy dissertation. <laughs> and, and I had a number of psychological hangups. I found it stressful to think about writing what would in essence be a book. That, that was a psychological barrier for me. So what I ended up doing was writing four separate papers. And as you might imagine, they were mostly related to transaction cost economics. I'm happy to say that three were eventually published. The core paper never was uh, published in part because the idea just wasn't good enough. And, and frankly, Michael Porter came out with a, an article in, in 1996 that was far better in the similar vein of what I was trying to do. And so mm. that never went anywhere. So the, the big picture is I didn't really come up with a singular dissertation topic. It was a series okay. of essays. The second is, well, one of the empirical contexts came from Brian Silverman. Uh, he had been a consultant I think it was Braxton Associates, and had done work in the trucking industry. Right. And so he said, hey, why don't you look at trucking? So I went to my advisor and said, hey, why don't I look at trucking? And my advisor, Alder Williamson, in his incredible way, said, Jackson, there's nothing there, move on. <laughs> and in my very stubborn way, I said, oh, I'm going to look at it anyway. Fortunately, it, it worked out uh, pretty well, I think. Well, the field has benefited from your stubbornness because those, are, those papers are really, you know, they're indispensable. Well, that's very kind oh. of you to say, thank you. Uh, another paper came from me reading the San Francisco Chronicle one Sunday, where I learned of a garment manufacturing facility up in Napa, California, a unionized facility, which had used the traditional, what's called straight line method, which is really a Fordist method, but they had started to move to teams. And I thought, well, wait a second, uh, if they're moving to teams in the same facility, you have a horse race. And mm -hmm. I, I called up the guy who was the manager, I remember his name still, 
Terence Savory, and I said, uh, hey, I'm a PhD student. I want to study some organizational stuff. What you're doing is fascinating. Can I come up and visit? And so he invited me to come up and, and visit. And what I discovered is he had taken a small part of his workforce and moved them to these uh, small little teams to produce women's lowers, that skirts, pants, shorts, that sort of stuff. And the, the teams were producing the exact same garments as the straight line production. Okay. I thought, wow, this is awesome. So I convinced him, sweet talked him into giving me some data. And he gave me a Excel spreadsheet that he had used to do his analysis to move people over to teams. And what he told me is the teams were less productive than the straight line production. Well, in my engineering way, I went through every line of that spreadsheet and I discovered he made a math mistake. And the teams were actually more productive than the straight line production. Hmm. So I called him up and said, hey, Terry, you know, I'm going through this spreadsheet. Go over to line H, H11, look in that cell. Do you see what I see? And he said, what do you see? I said, looks like you made a math mistake. Looks like there should be another zero in there. And after a few expletives, he slammed up the phone on me. <laughs> and I discovered much later that he converted the entire facility over to Teams. Wow. That's, that's research with an impact. Well, years later, I went back and I, uh, this is a story unto itself that I won't tell here unless you have time, but I got the weekly pay data for a year before the transition and three years after the transition. And so we were able to do some very detailed estimates in terms of studying teams and the benefits of teams. And fortunately, I had interviewed a bunch of teams, so I had some real rich data on teams. I had interviewed some straight line production people. And that led to, it was in my dissertation, but not in a really great way. It led to entire rewriting with Bart Hamilton and Hideo Wan. And we wrote a couple of papers, one of which made it to the Journal of Political Economy. And that ultimately, I think, was central to me getting tenure. Yeah, yeah. The third paper, or maybe it's the fourth paper now, my, my sister worked for Coke. And so I wrote a paper on Coke versus Pepsi-Cola in their, uh, in their uh, soda dispensaries, you know, at Burger King and whatnot. Yeah, and how there was sort of a Corno equilibrium where they ultimately had differentiated where Coke had co-specialized and Pepsi had. That was a gist. Okay. So those were the four papers of the dissertation. So what, 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 what were your biggest challenges in, in executing this dissertation? Well, back then I was using SAS. And I discovered uh, SAS had an error in, in one of the uh, programs I was using, one of the functions. I was using a Tobit. And SAS had a problem with the Tobit. And it took me a long time to figure out why that wasn't uh, working so well. That was a, a big headache. Uh, getting the data, cleaning the data was a, a bit of a headache. Uh, the rest of the papers were not data intensive. So the big headache came from data intensive. And the biggest headache was just getting Ollie to sign off on it. Mm. 
I wasn't that good as a PhD student and uh, Ollie had a high bar. So when I actually graduated in 1996 and I thought I had two chapters signed off, I get to St. Louis and I find out, no, he's not gonna sign off on anything, which made me quite angry. Ooh. And it, it took me a while to go back and rework everything to finally satisfy his, uh, his, his quality bar, it took me another year. But in the long run, it was well worth it. Uh, I did need uh, additional uh, push, I think, to keep advancing my skills. In fact, I'd say the first six years, I was on a pretty steep learning curve. That is six years after my dissertation. Right. Mm -hmm. So I really appreciated him holding my feet to the fire. And I appreciated all the other people who helped me on that learning curve. So, yeah, so you're bringing up the, the next topic I wanted to ask about, which is, you know, you, you started off as a, a pretty straightforward transaction cost economist with a, you know, uh, a, uh, a dissertation focused on, you know, economizing. Um, but that's not where you've stayed. Obviously, you've, you've, you've branched out into other areas. Can you tell us a little bit about the, the journey you've been through that has taken you from those initial research projects to uh, through what you've done and to what you're doing now? I remember my first Academy of Management when I was on the job market and somebody stopped me while I was walking with a friend uh, who'd been out for a while and this person asked, what did you do? And I had developed a, a little elevator pitch and basically said, well, I, I want to be a transaction cost economist just like Ollie. And my friend quickly pulled me aside and said, he told me, what are you saying? Uh, there are a lot of people who are not very supportive of transaction cost economics. And if that's the way you pitch yourself, you're gonna narrow down the potential job opportunities. So I thought a lot about what I was doing, what I wanted to do. And it took me a while to actually come up with my elevator pitch. But ultimately here's what I came up with. I said, I study the antecedents and performance consequences of organizational choice. Boom. And I will maintain that every paper I've published since then mm -hmm. fits into that, that little elevator pitch. And so in, in some ways, you might say, well, I've expanded beyond transaction cost economics. I'd rather say I've expanded transaction cost economics okay. in my little way. And almost everything ties back to uh, the, the fundamental principles of transaction cost economics. You may not see that in every paper, but in my perverted mind, I see it in every paper. Okay. Okay, so, so what have been some of the, um, the interesting turning points along the way where you, you got some new insight or some new direction? Uh, there are several of these. <clears throat> One came from Joanne Oxley. You've perhaps heard of that name. I know some of you know I her know well. Joanne, yes. Joanne's a wonderful person. I love her. She's, uh, frankly, I love all the folks I went to school with because they're just, they're great. Uh, but I, I went to this conference early on and uh, Joanne was my discussant. And she wisely pointed out that I hadn't accounted for endogeneity. It was very early on. I think it was my first year. And I'm like, well, what the hell is that? And how should I deal with it? So I, I studied up on endogeneity quite a bit. And if, if you've read any of my papers, you'll find out I've, endogeneity is probably a 
pretty big deal to me. And uh, I think I heard you mention in a, another broadcast, it, it eventually became a pretty big deal for all the Berkeley folks mm -hmm. uh, in terms of identification. But her comment and her thoughtfulness to talk to me afterwards really changed the direction of what I did, or at least how I did it. And it eventually led to this paper that was published in Strategic Organization on endogeneity in strategic management, mm -hmm. trying to share with others what I've learned in a very practical way and making it very specific for, uh, for scholars in, in strategy. I also, I had submitted that paper to SMJ and it was rejected pretty handily and quickly. Uh, it went to strategic organization and had a very smooth, smooth publication process. And so I like to think that because I went to SMJ, it actually cleared the way for other papers that were methodological in nature mm. to get published there. I don't know if that's true, but I tell myself that to make me feel better. Mm. <laughs> so that was one changing point. Another turning point is I did a lot of work with a guy named Bart Hamilton, who's an econometrician. Right. Who uh, uh, really uh, helped me tool up, skill up, change the way I thought about uh, data. Third changing point was Todd Zenger. He's been a co-author uh, and was a great partner, is a great partner, and really helped me identify curiosities that we went on to write, write papers about. Uh, Brian Silverman has been a co-author from, from day one, and uh, he's been a great uh, buddy and pal. Uh, Janet Berkowitz, if, if I go high, she kind of goes low in terms of the details, and, and uh, she's been very helpful in terms of uh, helping me focus on, on the details of things. And then the one final person I'll mention is a guy named Gary Miller. Probably none of you know Gary. He was in political science. But he helped me a lot in, in reading my papers and helping me get better at writing. Because as an engineer, I'm not a very good writer. I have to work hard to, to write. And if my papers are good at all, it's only because uh, I go through 30 iterations mm. <laughs> in terms of trying to get the writing uh, right. Well, I think, I think you've been successful at it. So whatever, whatever you're doing is working. Um, so you, you defined earlier, you defined your, your research domain as the antecedents and performance consequences of organizational choices. Wow, that's pretty good. I, I, I committed it to memory there. Yeah. So what do you think within that, within that domain of research defined that way, what do you think are the most important unanswered questions about the antecedents and performance consequences of organizational choices? What do we not know about that at this point that we really should know? Yeah, so let me say, I don't think that's the right question. Okay, good. Uh, I saw you ask that question to everybody else. I've watched all the videos. They're, they're really quite uh, great. And I, I want to compliment you and thank you for providing the service. Because as I've watched the videos, there are certain themes that have come across that have benefited me. But I'm not sure that's the right question. What's the better question to ask? Uh, there is this, I had this pleasure. It, it's really an honor. After Ali passed away, uh, the family needed someone to go through his files to figure out what was worthy to keep and not keep. So I've spent a lot of time doing that. And, and Ollie had these Ollieisms, 
uh, things. He would write on people's papers. I'm, I'm sure you PhD students who are on the, the call here have faculty that have their own little isms. And one of Ollie's isms I have written down here was that you wanted to progress in a modest, slow, molecular, definitive way. And so he'd write that, every PhD student who had Ollie would get this on their paper at least once, if not many times. Now that quote comes from a guy named uh, Pouget, and, or maybe Pouget, depending on how your pronunciations are. And what he was talking about ultimately, and I hope this resonates with you, is that changes come about through social revolutions. I think we know in academia, we see major changes in fields because of social revolutions. And so the way I try to think about this is you want to choose, as a PhD student, you want to choose the social revolution that you want to advance. You want to be part of whatever that revolution is. Now for me, that revolution was transaction cost economics. And once you choose a revolution and you educate yourself about the theory and the empirics, then it gives you a set of, of eyeglasses, lenses, to look at the world, look at phenomena, read the newspaper. I think Venkat talked about reading the newspaper in the last mm -hmm. video. Right. And it allows you to see things that you wouldn't otherwise see. It allows you to identify curiosities, phenomena. Uh, and the, the idea is through those glasses, you find new questions. And if you come up with a new question that hasn't been asked, and the, the curiosity hasn't been tackled by some other literature, then you have found a research opportunity. And the great thing about academia is that they, it encourages you, it rewards you if you find these new questions or new phenomena. So instead of saying, what is unanswered? I think there are a lot of things that are unanswered, I just don't know what they all are. It's instead saying, I'm in, I'm in this, this social revolution and I'm trying to see the world through it to find interesting things that are not explained. Mm -hmm. And I believe that applies to uh, just about everything that I've, I've done in research. So that's the question I would ask. What social revolution do you want to belong to? Have you fully understood the theory that allows you to look at the world and see it in a different way. As I go through all these papers, what I see are all these different opportunities where he was looking at the world through a comparative contractual lens. And because he did that, he saw things that people didn't see. Mm. And that allowed him to be on the frontier of that revolution for 30 years, which is really quite phenomenal. And, earned him a Nobel Prize. Yeah, so the question is, what's the, what's the unique lens that you look through, the, look, at through the, look through to see the world to find research questions? Not so much. That, that's right, but I like to call it a social revolution because frankly, it adds a little bit more excitement and urgency sure. to what you're doing. You're part of the revolution. Now, it may be mundane because it's an acad the academic landscape, but I, I find that very exciting and it's always motivated me.
Nice. I like that. So it's more of a process question than a, than a, you know, more about, more about the journey than the destination. That's exactly right. Yeah. Good. Okay. Good. So, um, okay. So what, so let me just ask you, what has that lens enabled you to see uh, coming that, that maybe other people haven't, aren't seeing coming? So let me take a step back and I'll take a running, running start. Okay. That, that lens helped Todd Zenger and I identify this issue of vacillation in organizational structures. Right. Yep. It, it, it allowed us to recast the knowledge-based view of the firm to create a knowledge-based theory of the firm. Uh, frankly, it led me down this path that I've been pursuing lately on problem formulation. And, uh, and the processes around it and the governance of it. Uh, right now, I'm beginning to use this lens to look at the governance of startups and also the governance structures of, of firms, mm -hmm. which up until this point, uh, if you look at board governance, it has a very strong principal agent develop, uh, angle to it. It has a very strong legal angle to it. There are a few folks that have looked at it more as a team production and governance. I'm looking at it as a problem formulation and problem solving process, which is in this sort of transaction cost type of a perspective. So that's one area that I'm going now and I hope there'll be progress made in the future. Another area which I'm presenting today is about this Cato approach, which is looking at shots and how that can lead to repositioning. Uh, using a very comparative approach, uh, focusing on adjustment costs, transaction costs, and opportunity costs. Those right now are areas that I'm trying to see into the future and find opportunities, phenomena to, to write about and theorize about. Nice. Nice. Okay, good. Um, so, let's see. Um, where are we on time? Okay, 136. We have a few more minutes. We can we can continue. Um, so you work with a, a a a fairly large number of doctoral students at this point. I guess that's right. Is that fair to say? Not a large number. Okay. At, at all, and we never had a large number. Okay. So it's it's more like you know probably every three years I work with a, a different PhD student. Although given my my shift. It may be I don't have access to PhD students in the future. I may have to start doing, uh, using, using a Stata again. <laughs> you may actually have to touch some data. Oh, my goodness. As, in fact, I just renewed my subscription to Stata because I have to touch data again. Yes. So, so, what's the, so when you're working with doctoral students, what's the most important piece of advice that you give them? Do I have to be restricted to just one? No, please. Go okay. on. We, we've, got, we've got at least 10 minutes here. Go Great. For it. Well, I'll, I'll probably have eight minutes worth of stuff. Excellent. Okay, I'm talking to all you PhD students out there. I see your faces. If, if there's one most important thing, it's to recognize that research is a social enterprise, whether it's a social, uh, social revolution or how you develop data. There's a theme across every, every presenter so far in this the series of shows that uh, Rich is providing. And the theme is you got to talk to people. The tendency is to withdraw 
we had people in my program who disappeared for a year because they, they hadn't figured out what they wanted to do. And that's the exact wrong thing to do. You should do the exact opposite. Bring ideas to your faculty, bring ideas to your, your peers, engage in conversations. And if you reflect on all the discussions you've had so far, all the interviewees, they've all said the same thing. You gotta be talking to people more and more. And ultimately, it is a social enterprise. And if you don't develop relationships, if you aren't outgoing, then you put yourself at a disadvantage in terms of coming up with, with good ideas. So it's about this, this, uh, this network, this social fabric. And to create the social fabric, you may need to do certain things. So at... Uh... And by the way, I'll agree with that. I'll, I'll say for myself that isolation was one of the things that definitely held me back very much in, in my early career, definitely. So at, at Berkeley, we decided to celebrate people when they passed their written exams or passed their orals. And we, we came up with this little gift. It's Oliver Williamson's schema, schema done artistically. I'm a woodworker, so I made these. And we gave, the, we had parties for everybody when they passed either their orals or their written exams. And we had a, a kind of a, a ceremony where we'd say funny things about everybody and, and give them gifts. Uh, it was called the Williamson Society. And we did those things to build relationships, to build trust, to build a, 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 the warp and the weave of the social fabric so that people would collaborate more. And if you collaborate more, you develop your ideas that, that much faster. So finding ways to engage, maybe not just individually, but to build a social community that's involved in learning is a pretty big deal. So that's, that's the biggest thing. But I'd, I'd like to share with you some tips and tricks that I share with a lot of uh, young faculty and PhD students. And you might wanna get a notepad out for this one. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you we are recording this, so, you know. Okay, I got, I got seven, <laughs> seven tips for you. Tip number one, when you're thinking of an idea, write the introduction. And the introduction says, here's the phenomenon, here's the issue, here's why the current literature doesn't, doesn't really explain it. Here's the value I'm gonna create, here's what's gonna happen, and here's how much value it's going to create. Write that up in, three to five pages, no more than five. Then go to your colleagues, two, two colleagues, and say, hey, will you read this and give me feedback in 24 hours? If it's four or five pages, they'll do it. When you get that feedback, look at it, assume they're right, and rewrite your introduction, make it better. Then go to two faculty members, do the same thing. Ask for feedback in 24 hours. If you give them a paper, which takes you a year to write, it goes on a stack of paper and it may get lost in that stack of paper. But four pages, five pages, they'll give back to you immediately. Do that three, four, five times until you have feedback that says, oh, this is interesting. This hasn't been done before. What you've done then is number one, market research you know that you have a good idea. Number two, you've laid out a game plan 
a contract in terms of what you have to do to execute. Now, maybe it changes along the way if you get involved in data, but at least you have a very strong vector in which to proceed. So this, this rapid feedback is about failing quickly, failing inexpensively, and getting market research and going down the learning curve quickly. I try to do that with every paper I write. I probably do it a little less so now, but in my early career, I did it with every paper I wrote and it kept me from going down the wrong path many, many times. Point two, do the same thing with your methods section. Write up your methods section, find your favorite econometrician, hopefully two or three, the toughest people you know, and ask them to give you their feedback on whether or not you're doing the right thing. They'll tell you right away. And if you have a good econometrician, it takes them five minutes to see what you're doing. And they're gonna ask you a few questions and they'll say, well, you know what? You're not thinking about the error structure correctly. And therefore you need to do something differently. Yes, you need a panel estimator, but really you need an Ariana Bond estimator, for example. So the second tip is do the same sort of market research on your methods section. Third, I think you should manage the paper process as a project. We don't learn project management skills as academics, but project management skills are what you need if you're gonna get things spit out, if you're gonna get things published, if you're gonna get things uh, accepted. So, uh, this is particularly true if you have co-authors, and many of you will co-author. So one thing about a, a project approach in co-authoring is you actually want to have a, a contract up front. Now, by contract, I don't mean a formal document that's signed, but certainly an email exchange where you've both agreed to what you're doing, what you're both going to contribute, and what happens if there's some conflict. What happens if someone doesn't follow through? Are you gonna change the ordering on the, the names when you title the, the paper? Uh, how are you going to remediate and resolve disputes? Now you can't go to a third party, obviously, but you do wanna set convergent expectations. Do you like how I slipped in all that transaction cost stuff right there? I just slipped it in. So you want to uh, manage it as a project, at least in terms of the contract. But you also wanna think about how you're going to, to uh, manage the portfolio of projects, which I'm gonna come back to in a few minutes. Tip number four, if you get an R&R, &R, drop everything and work on it. Get it done. In other words, focus on the bottleneck activity. Eliminate the bottleneck and often, uh, it happens around R&R. I've seen people who have two R&Rs, but they're focused on writing a new paper. I'm like, well, what are you doing? You only have so much time for tenure. So focus on the bottleneck activity, the critical activity in R&Rs typically are those activities. Okay, switching gears, number five. Uh, this is the biggest mistake I made as a junior faculty member. When I graduated with my PhD, I had 10 different projects, 10 different papers. And what I would do is work on one, get to a sticking point, set it aside, go work on another. Get to a sticking point, set it aside, go work to another. 
And unfortunately, every time I switched from one paper to another, I had to reload into my head the research, the relevant research, all the issues. So every time I switched, there was a, a loss, a loss. And because I didn't bust the barrier, I came back next time, the barrier was still there. If I kicked it over to my co-author, the co-author didn't get to the barrier. And so there is this power of focus. It took me until my third year as an assistant professor to recognize I should focus. And so 10 months of the year, I focus sequentially. That is, I work on a paper until it's done, unless an r, &R comes in. And by focusing, the creative juices eventually kick in and you bust through that, that barrier. Or because of the social fabric, you've talked to all these other faculty members and you've got new ideas and you bust through. You have to focus until you bust through the wall. Now I said do that nine or 10 months a year. The other months I'm often juggling, getting data sets, getting people to work on them, to clean them up, to do these sort of things to prepare for the time when I need to focus. The power of focus was never explained to me. And it turns out to be fundamental for busting through these, these barriers, these walls. Uh, the sixth topic we've already discussed, which is you wanna figure out who you are, have clarity, which means come up with your 30 second elevator pitch about who you are in the marketplace. I gave you mine, what's mine, Rich? Jackson Nickerson studies the antecedents and performance consequences of organizational choices. A plus, man, you're awesome, you're awesome. That's right, so whatever yours is, come up with it. Because not only does it help you market yourself, it allows you to filter, to filter which project you should work on and which ones you shouldn't because you want to develop your reputation of who you are, you wanna have some coherency in your research and you need this filter to say, you know, that's an interesting project, but it's really not gonna to add to who I am, my reputation and how I am going to dent the universe. Okay, maybe scratch the universe, <laughs> but you wanna come up with that. The last one, you don't need to know now, but I'm gonna share with you anyway. My belief is every, three, four, five years. You should basically reinvest in learning a new area of the literature. You should reinvest and reinvent yourself. Now, in my worldview, I've done that outside of strategy and brought it into strategy. So I've, I've read a lot in terms of the learning and education literature. I've read a lot in terms of the psychology literature. Frankly, I've gone deep into certain areas of, of economics, but every three to five years I reinvest because new ideas come from smashing together old ideas. And if you bring ideas that are more diverse than other people, you increase the likelihood that you're gonna come up with some new and potentially big idea. Now, don't, don't do that every year. <laughs> uh, you might not do it for the first five years as you're commercializing 
of the dissertation and extending those things. But certainly after five years, just as you start to get to, to tenure, you want to start doing it after that and on a, on a regular cadence. That allows you, I hope, to grow intellectually, professionally, and who knows, maybe personally. Those are my ideas, and I consume my eight or 10 minutes. Great stuff, man. What, what can you, um, was there a, the next to last one that you said about the research identity? Is there a succinct expression for that you have? Yeah, I say uh, just have clarity about who you are and what you do. Okay. So I actually have a cartoon. I'm going to share my screen here. If you guys can see this. I use this both with my MBA students as an explanation for strategy for organizations, but I also share this with PhD students as uh, an explanation for developing a research identity. Yeah. <clears throat> that... We're on the anyway. same page. I love it. I love it. Basic, same basic message. Same basic message. We just use different words. Well, great. Well, thank you very much, Jackson. We really appreciate your, um, uh, your willingness to be interviewed on these topics. And uh, I'm glad that you are a fan of the, uh, of the uh, YouTube series and uh, uh, hope that you'll uh, put the good word out there for everybody to tune in. Uh, we're closing in on 500 subscribers. And uh, so maybe we'll, we'll get over that mark very soon once, once this one is posted and uh, all the Jackson Nickerson fans out there flock to the channel. So. I'll tell my wife, so you get one. Okay, oh, well, there you go. Hey, what about the kids? Come on. Oh, no. Oh, no. no. <laughs> you don't want to inflict this on them, huh? Well, I'll tell them, but they're not going to come watch it. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Got to pump up the subs. <laughs> anyway, okay. Well, thanks very much, Jackson. We really appreciate it. Okay, thank you.